So <clears throat> it's natural at this time of a retreat, especially a retreat of this length, to be asking, as a number of you have in the practice meetings, what's next? Or even what is this practice for? Or what, you know, what's the context? This guy was talking about last night. How to continue this practice? How to continue it here? And certainly how to continue it as you return home in a few days' time. And we'll talk more about the specifics of that, as we said, in the coming days. But the simple answer is probably not very satisfactory. (laughs) Sounds like you know what it is. Just keep doing it. Just keep practicing. There's nothing kind of more mysterious or deep that we're, we've been waiting to reveal that will make it all kind of fall into place for you. But really just to keep going. As Bhikkhu Bodhi said, did I say this already? Um, I don't think so. There's only two things you need to be successful in your Dharma practice. One is to begin and the next is to keep going. Simple as that. But as Guy was uh, talking about last night in that lovely talk on the qualities of this practice, it's practicing being free. It's really approximating again and again and again these qualities of Nibbana. This practice has the flavor, the attributes of Nibbana itself. When the mind is resting in awareness, even if it's certainly not complete, deep, or or ultimate, it's free from clinging. It's free free from kalesas, free from the hindrances. This is powerful. Just that, moments, and hopefully many moments, free of, of especially, you know, the stronger forms of those suffering states. And I was thinking about this, like it purifies and cultivates in one easy step. And then I thought, but wait, there's more. <laughs> Sounds like an infomercial, you know, it's like. And the more is, is freedom. And the purification and the cultivation that's happening in this turning to and resting in awareness, this very real possibility of freedom is there. And so the idea or the practice is to keep going and to keep deepening. You know, whatever we've tasted here, it can always deepen, can always deepen. And so as I was thinking about practice and talking about practice, I somehow came up with, um, and I'm not a mathematician, so excuse any any inaccuracies, but a graph with a you know x-axis and a y-axis, those L-shaped things, and the x-axis is easy. It's like when practice is easy, simple, accessible. The y-axis is deep and empty, and so we're all moving that point. And I had to look this up because I didn't know what it was called. The point where the x-axis and the y-axis intersect is called the origin. So it's like we're defining or revealing the origin, or you could say the original mind, in moving that point 
between easy and deep. Don't underestimate the power of easy, the importance of easy, easy and accessible, but certainly don't understand the importance of deep. And we learn what supports both of those. They're both important, sort of this easy, very simple, just being resting in awareness. Don't underestimate the power of being able to access that easily um, and, and more frequently. But of course the deep or the empty is also really important. So we're just kind of working with these axes of practice to, to deepen them. And it's said that awareness is like turning on a light in a dark room. It doesn't matter if the room's been dark for 10 minutes or a hundred years. You turn on the light and it's filled with light, filled with awareness. And what I always say about mindfulness, and you could say that same about awareness, is it's digital. You know, I could say in any moment, if you know what these words mean and have some sense of them, be mindful or be aware, rest in awareness. And you probably have a good chance of doing that. But if I were to say, be concentrated right now, it doesn't really make sense. Uh, Concentration is analog. It takes time to build. It's a process. Whereas awareness and mindfulness have this immediacy to it. And perhaps you can get a sense, these, the practices we did at the beginning of the retreat were these analog practices. They took effort and they took time to develop. There's a real benefit and power in putting in that effort and, and um, doing that development, but there's something so powerful about the immediacy of the awareness practice. And so, again, what we do and what we keep doing is training and learning and trusting how to rest in awareness and how to stabilize that. This is moving on that spectrum. I guess I could put on the y-axis, steady. I put deep or empty, but steadying in that, stabilizing in that. And hopefully you've got a taste of how freeing that is. And then the practice is to keep deepening the ease of access and the reliability of access or the steadiness or the deepness of access. Don't underestimate the power and the challenge of really stabilizing in this view, in this way of being. Um, Not easy to do here in these somewhat perfect conditions of the forest refuge. Really hard to do out in life, but that's the potential of this for people who really deepen in this. So... We structured this retreat, as you know, to do these kind of, and I always hesitate to call them foundational because I don't, I never like meaning that, you know, then you let them go, but we need these solid foundations for our practice of the steadiness of the breath, the warmth of the metta, the brahmaviharas, and now the spaciousness of the awareness. And we've spoken a lot about how they support each other, how they're not like radically separate, they flow into each other. And as we um, 
deepen our confidence and, and training in all of them, they really give this great mandala for our practice. It's very helpful. But I think there's also three, you could say, more underlying aspects to what we've been doing here. And that is we've been learning how to practice, how to train this mind and heart. I really think we learn how to do long retreats. Some of you have been on a number of long retreats. Some of you are newer to long retreat practice. We learn how to do it. We learn what it takes. You know, it's like running a marathon. You don't sort of set out hell-bent at full speed at the beginning of your marathon. You pace yourself and you learn how to do that, how how to marshal your energy, how to train for that. And I think so we've been learning that here with all of the supports that we've had. And we've been learning what's needed for these different practices, Again, not that they're that separate, but how to support each one um, in, the, in the ways that really support that particular manifestation. And we've learned how to work with this heart and mind at different times of the retreat. What worked three weeks ago or what was skillful isn't skillful today. This is really important to get a sense that you've been doing that. I think the training part of this is so important because we take that with us as we leave the retreat, how to train in this way, how to have confidence and trust in ourselves and our capacity to do this. And so we learn how to be responsive. We don't practice out of ideas or ideals, but really this present moment orientation of what works. So that's the first area the training part. And of course, the important, uh, what we've also been uh, developing awareness practices. And again, some of you have done these practices, somewhat familiar. For others, it was somewhat new. Wherever you were on that spectrum, hopefully, I don't doubt that there's been learning, deepening here. You know, as I said, we can always deepen um, the capacity for this awareness, for our access to it, the ease of access, the frequency of access, the stability of access, the depth of that kind of clear seeing. And then lastly, and I would say most importantly, is deepening wisdom. This is always the ultimate intention of our practices. Um, talk of, it's why we call it insight meditation. The main form of practice that we do is to see clearly And we see clearly on all these different levels, um, on a personal level, our unique conditioning, mental habits, um, trauma, background, whatever it is. And there can be real freeing on that very uniquely personal level that can happen and I know has happened for people on this retreat. And then the more impersonal seeing, which we frame as seeing or insight into the three characteristics, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. And here the, f- the real frame or emphasis has been seeing the emptiness, which really is the shorthand of saying three characteristics. This is the wisdom piece. And all of this is leading to freedom, this deepening of wisdom, whether it's personal or impersonal. And so all of us here 
have, even as we've sat and walked together, heard teachings together, we've been on our own unique journey. That's inevitable. And had different experiences. That's also inevitable. But just the sense I've got in speaking with all of you, and it's been so um, touching and inspiring, is, is a deepening in sadha, faith. Both faith faith that we keep talking about in this mind heart and its capacity to, to open, to have this kind of freedom, but more the, the, the uh, connection with the teachings and the tradition. You know, that we're sons and daughters, children of the Buddha, and we're practicing in a way that's freeing. This is uh, always very inspiring. And so I see a lot of lightness and joy happiness. And I know it's not solid or enduring, but that we're all tasting this, this kind of brightness of mind. It just so, so uh, inspiring and, and powerful. This temporary Nibbana that Guy spoke about last night, quoting Ajahn Buddhadasa. It's a great short article if you haven't read it yet, just saying that, you know, these minds, if they were always in states of torment, we couldn't survive. We survive and then we thrive because of these momentary tastes of Nibbana. And this practice is really pointing to how to make that more frequent, more accessible, perhaps not so temporary, not so fleeting. And then looking at on another way, another framing of what we've been doing here, um, I see there's a spectrum of practices. Somehow I get into the maps. I like thinking of things kind of visually. And um, at one end I would put the samatha practices, the tranquility or the, the calming practices where we take simple objects and train and rest the mind. And that includes the Brahma-viharas, even though they have their complexity and richness, but that's the direction they lead. So samatha practice And then mindfulness with directed attention. What we often do, directing the attention to the breath, to different sensations, you know, what's predominant, but a sense of directing the attention. And then choiceless attention, where we really let go of choosing and just let experience unfold and and know the objects of the six sense doors. But there's still a relating to objects. This, these, this style of practice is classic vipassana, insight meditation, where the three characteristics can potentially be revealed because we're opening to changing objects, seeing their nature over and over again. And sometimes when I talk about this spectrum, I, I'll end there. But I'm going to add to the spectrum that I talk about with uh, a next phase or practice, um, I learned from my Tibetan teachers called Samatha without support. And this is um, a, a practice where having done some Samatha practice, so steadied the mind, so whether through literally one-pointed attention or um, what's called Kanika Samadhi, which we do in mindfulness or insight where we're in, with changing objects, but there's some steadiness. Mind has been collected and unified with an object. In the Samatha without support, you let go of the object. You're not shifting to awareness 
practice. So there's still um, concentration, samatha, stillness, tranquility. But in the letting go of objects, the mind becomes very peaceful, very still. And it's just a slight shift from there to what's next in the spectrum of the awareness practice. And then I'd put on the, em- on the end of that spectrum the emptiness practice, where we really see with kind of some vividness or clarity the empty nature of this awareness. And so all of us have been, perhaps knowingly or unknowingly, practicing somewhere along this spectrum during this retreat. And again, this is what I'm uh, em- emphasizing or pointing to here is the training that's been happening of knowing this terrain of skillful means and skillful practices. There's no one right, better, best practice in that list. There's a spectrum, all of which have their role or place, all of which can be really skillful at different times. And so I think a big part of the training is knowing where, with some intention, not rigid intention, but some intention, that we direct our practice in that spectrum. Because I know for myself, the shamatha without support and then just a little softening and turning to the awareness, not with any big move, is actually a, um, it's a common way that I practice around awareness practice. But there's a softness to it and a naturalness to it that, that really works for me. And I know um, at times I need to sharpen that softness with, with some clarity, with some um, perhaps a technique. But that's a, a way I tend to practice. I ground in the body, using the breath, using the kind attitude, releasing the object relation and then it's 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 a simpler move to the awareness practice for me and guy has given a lot of specific techniques the the kind of um central way of framing it is this turning to awareness recognizing awareness and then resting in that so resting in the awareness and he added uh, release, the release that can come, that's a purification that I mentioned at the beginning. Um, I started to see a pattern there in the recognize, rest, release, so I added relax at the beginning. Don't forget that, that we start this practice from a place of ease or relaxation. And then I added repeat at the end. It's like, just keep doing that, that's what I'm saying. But don't forget the relaxing. Someone in a, one of the meetings talked about how one of their teachers framed this practice, and they talked about fresh, casual, and at ease. Just this, get a tactile sense for this relaxed mind that just makes this subtle shift to knowing awareness. So when I saw this pattern, you know, recognize, re- relax, rec- turn, recognize, rest, release, repeat. It's like, can't we get an R for that turn? I tried. I couldn't. The only one I could come up with was rotate, which is not, <laughs> not very subtle. But if you, if you can figure one out, please let me know. 
because for me, I like the mnemonic of all, of all of the R's. But what I also noticed about all of these words is the R-E. Relax. Recognize. Release. Review. You know what? The R-E means to do again, right? Or to do something that you already know you did before. That's what this R-E in front of these words mean. And so I think that's also a pointing in these words. We're turning to something we already know. We're not creating some new mind. I mean, at times we wish we could do that. Can I get a different, hand this one in and get a, a replacement model? But no, it's this original mind. This is something that we know, and it's, I think, why so many of us connect to this practice is it feels like home. It feels natural. And I'm reminded, I, I use this story of the Buddha um, before he became enlightened, after all of his years of really tough practice, remembering sitting under the rose apple tree. That that's where he went. He went to that very calm but collected mind of this young boy in the shade of a rose apple tree. Again, there's something in that that, that we can resonate with as we do this practice. So the reviewing or the re-part, just that's part of the faith. There's something here that we know or can trust or can rest into because it's not foreign or unfamiliar. We know this place. And when I started practicing all those many years ago, it was interesting how, um, how many books there were, and a lot of the books that were available for Dharma reading were about Zen. And it was Zen and everything, you know, and even, what was it, Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance and archery and flower arranging and all of that stuff. Well, mindfulness has taken over. I don't know if you've noticed, you know, the mindfulness and everything, therapy and, and um, in schools and businesses, you know, the mindfulness magazine. What would it be like if it was awareness and everything? Awareness being what was being pointed to as possible. Because of this, and I, you know, I think the challenge, of course, is it takes some stability of mind. Mindfulness, as I said, we can do. Awareness, we can turn to if we know what we're looking for. We have to have some training, I think, to know what we're looking for. But for us now, it's awareness and everything. Awareness included, because it's always available. And this resting, turning to awareness, instead of the involvement in objects, can immediately bring spaciousness and equanimity. Powerful. And then what would it be like if it was emptiness and everything? That this was how we were viewing the world, viewing ourselves back in our life, empty of self, empty of stuff, empty of the solidity that we usually uh, assign 
to things and how we create relationships to them. Once we understand emptiness, we can use it skillfully to find freedom. It's just like I can sit in this chair knowing its nature. Guy was talking was it last night or the night before about rupa as an aggregate. And that basically all matter is the same, more space than solidity. And at the center, these atoms or whatever they are, they're all just like vibrating, right? And impermanent, you know, a conditioned thing arising out of conditions. So I understand its nature, that it's more space than, than, than solidity, that it's impermanent, that it's really vibrating at some fundamental level. But I can still sit in it, right, and trust it to support me. So I can understand its emptiness, its empty nature, and you, but still use it. It's like that analogy or that story from Ajahn Chah and the glass and being able to use the glass knowing its nature, that it's already broken. This way of seeing is very freeing. We can bring that into certainly our meditation practice, but into our lives. We can bring it into our understanding or our practice of the Brahma-viharas. All of the Brahma-viharas, as we deepen into them, become what you could say is transcendent. And that happens when we drop that locus of self. I'm sending to you, I'm radiating, I'm, I'm experiencing. Um, and there's just metta mettaing. Uh, there's no receiving. And this is the chant that you've been doing where the mind becomes exalted, immeasurable. This is what happens when we drop the sense of self and doing around the Brahma-viharas. I think this, this union of Brahma-viharas and emptiness, well, could I say is, is the most powerful, it's certainly really beneficial, is around compassion. Because compassion is the natural response of the heart that's, that's open, that's connected. Yet the world is so challenging. I mean, there's so much suffering and injustice and cruelty and prejudice and racism. It's understandable that we get overwhelmed. And, but unfortunately, because of that, we either fall into suffering states or we turn away because we can't bear it. Emptiness allows us to stay present. And this is the power of the union of, say, compassion and emptiness. Emptiness allows us to hold all of our experience, even the difficult ones, with openness or spaciousness or equanimity or compassion, whatever is needed. And I don't, I'm not saying this to say it's easy. I'm just saying it's possible. And there's that beautiful uh, archetype of this union of compassion and emptiness of Kuan Yin, the goddess of compassion. And it said, she hears the cries of the suffering of the world. She hears the joys as well. But her heart stays in balance, even as she moves to act. And so Kuan Yin has had many manifestations, many names in different countries. But I've always loved, maybe you know this, if you have a camera or a printer that's Canon, 
Right? You know that's Kuan Yin? Kuan Yin, Kanon. Uh, they named the company after Kuan Yin. So I have a Kuan Yin sitting on my desk at home. It always <laughs> makes me a little happy, just as a reminder of that possibility. She's often depicted in um, what's called the uh, pose of royal ease. I can't quite do it because I'm trapped under the do it. Where she's like this. The one it's big one at Spirit Rock, if you've seen it. That's a copy of the one in I think St. Louis. She's like this. She's not sitting, you know, cross legged. And it's said that it's this balance between stillness and responsiveness. It's just a great physical imagery. And she's often holding something. There's, there's a Kuan Yin uh, in the foyer out there, if you look as you come in. Um, and she's, I think, holding the Lotus of Enlightenment. She has a little Buddha floating above her head, too. Christina Feldman says, uh, Over the centuries, Kuan Yin has been portrayed in a, number of, in a variety of forms, At times, she is depicted as a feminine presence, face serene, arms outstretched, eyes open. At times, she holds a willow branch, symbolizing her resilience, able to bend in the face of the fiercest storms without being broken. At other times, she is portrayed with a thousand arms and hands, each with an open eye in its center, depicting her constant awareness of the anguish and her all-embracing responsiveness. Sometimes she takes the form of a warrior aimed with a multitude of weapons, embodying the fierce aspect of compassion, committed to uprooting the causes of suffering. A protector and a guardian, she is fully engaged with life. This is... What happens? What's possible with this union of compassion and emptiness, this resilience, this responsiveness, but at the heart, this steadiness, this equanimity? And the last page of your study guide has a, a few of the quotes that speak to this flavor of compassion and emptiness. The winds of circumstance blow across emptiness. Whom can they harm? And not in an unfeeling way, but just with this vast spaciousness of mind and heart. So that's kind of the archetypal or the elevated view of this union of compassion and emptiness. There are many human, more, perhaps more realistic, though still, still highly realized, I would say, human models for this. Mother Teresa, Thich Nhat Hanh, Rosa Parks, who refused to stand and give up her seat. She said, I would like to be remembered as a person who wanted to be free so other people would also be free. This fierceness, but this compassion. All of them experienced enormous suffering in their lives, but their hearts stayed open and steady and strong in the face of that. It's amazing, the capacity of this human heart and mind. And actually, Mother Teresa, um, you know, I always had this idea of her as kind of a saint, saint of Calcutta doing that amazing work. And then it's, she's more complicated, if you haven't heard this story. A book came out, it's a little while ago now, called Mother Teresa, 
Come Be My Light. And it actually uh, was based on her correspondence to her mentors and teachers. And it was like an expose of the anguish in her heart. This is what someone wrote about the book. It said it consists primarily of correspondence between Teresa and her confessors and superiors over a period of 66 years, provides the spiritual counterpoint to a life known mostly through its works. The letters reveal that for the last nearly half century of her life, she felt no presence of God whatsoever. That's 50 years. That absence seems to have started at a point precisely the time she began tending the poor and dying in Calcutta, and except for a five-week break in 1959, never abated. Although perpetually cheery in public, the Teresa of the letters lived in a state of deep and abiding spiritual pain. In more than 40 communications, many of which have never been seen, never been published, she bemoans the dryness, the darkness, the loneliness and the torture she is undergoing. She compares the experience to hell and at one point says it has driven her to doubt the existence of heaven and even God. She is acutely aware of the discrepancy between her inner state and her public demeanor. The smile, she writes, is a mask or a cloak that covers everything. Similarly, she wonders whether she is engaged in verbal deception. I spoke as if my very heart was in love with God, tender, personal love, she remarks to an advisor. If you were there, you would have said, what hypocrisy. I found that to be amazing, that this woman who in her external actions was was compassionate. I mean, what she did with her life was truly amazing. Let's talk about self-sacrifice. Despite, and it becomes to me even more miraculous knowing this. You know, if it was like, oh, well, Mother Teresa, it's easy for her. You know, she's just having a great old time there with the dead, dead and dying in Calcutta. Um, no. She struggled, yet she still acted. She still acted, and she transformed so many lives. Certainly the people she helped and inspired, you know, hospitals and and hospice places to be created to care for people, but all of the people who both literally went to serve with her and in the associated um, charities that she started, but all of us probably touched by that imagery of of her. Yet this was her inner experience. She said, if I ever become a saint, I will surely be one of darkness. I will continually be absent from heaven to light the light of those in darkness on earth. It was like a bodhisattva vow. So in just this little taste, I get both the the pain of the contracted self and the judging, and I intuit there was a deep emptiness there. What else could 
allow her to do what she did with her life. It's, it's, it's amazing. This is a, the capacity of a human heart. It really is amazing. So we don't have to be perfect to practice compassion, to act in the world. We have to actually be willing to make mistakes, to be confused, to not know what to do or what to say. Maya Angelou says, I've learned that people will never forget, will forget what you said. People will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. And this is at that feeling level. We, you know, we might not be perfect, but we can open the heart in this way. And so in exploring this deepening of compassion, you have to realize it can come in many flavors. It can be fierce. Compassion doesn't mean, you know, we're just sort of soft and willowy and or only about taking care of others. We can be really called into action, you know, Climate change is one of the things that, like all of us, what are we actually going to do apart from recycling? You know, what, what are we called to do? Action is, is not, this practice isn't about inaction in that sense. Sharon Salzberg says, I've spent quite a bit of my life as a meditation teacher and writer commending the strengths of love and compassion So many times people have approached me and said something along the lines of, I don't know about developing greater love and compassion. Surely that will consign me to only saying yes, refusing to take a stand, letting other people be treated unjustly, being a wimp. She says, I think these views to some extent are a cultural legacy, the degradation of love to sentimentality and compassion to a root cause of fatigue. It is sometimes difficult to view compassion and loving kindness as the strengths they are. They are viewed too often as secondary virtues at best in our competitive culture. If you can't be brave or brilliant or wonderful, then you might as well be kind. But compassion does not imply ducking our responsibilities or shirking our power. Compassion, instead, is a potent tool for transformation, since it requires us to step outside of our conditioned response patterns. So there's a power to this quality of compassion when it's held in this spacious way that I've been talking about. And it doesn't have to mean we're a wimp. Many of you have probably also heard Sharon's story of being in India many years ago, going to see her teacher Munindra and riding in a rickshaw, where you know, which are very open um, uh, conveyances, and someone you know running along beside them, reaching in and trying to grab her purse from her. And of course, she fought back. She was very frightened, and the rickshaw driver was you know, faster as, as they could. And so she got away and, and made it to see Munindra and said, what should I have done? You know, this was so 
scary? What would be the appropriate Buddhist response? Manindra said very simply, you should have very mindfully and with great compassion whacked the attacker over the head with your umbrella. (laughs) So it doesn't mean being a wimp. So we explore. It's a practice. It's a practice. We won't get it right. We don't have to be perfect. But there are these images, you know, the archetype of Kuan Yin, this text that we've been reading, exalted, immeasurable. That's possible because of emptiness, because of a lack of self-centeredness. Where we often end up is we're worried we'll be overwhelmed, as I said, and so we close down, turn away. We think we can't bear it. But think of all the things you've said to yourself, I can't bear this, and yet here you are. We can bear much more than we think we can, especially if there is this union of compassion and emptiness, because that's what enables us to move out of the self-centeredness. Of course, this limited mind-body, I can't fix the problems of the world. But if that that belief causes me to close down, then I'm no help to anyone. If some sense of emptiness allows the heart to stay responsive, then we're in engagement. Empathy is what enables compassion. And we see that when the mind, or awareness, or when the mind naturally quietens, and its flavor is this responsiveness that we're talking about. Mindfulness itself, as a practice, has a little bit of kindness to it, right? In its acceptance, its non-judgment, its equanimity, in its receptivity, in its tenderness. When that mindfulness or awareness touches suffering, the natural response is kindness and concern, compassion. With emptiness, there's more room. There's more room for the other person or the other situation. If I'm all, you know, contracted and tight around me and mine and what I can and can't do and my concerns and fears and judgment... No room, no spaciousness. And if I'm judging or evaluating, what can I do? What should I do? What should I say? What's the wrong thing to say? What's the right thing to say? Can't let the compassion flow. Pema Chodron says, True compassion does not come from wanting to help out those less fortunate than ourselves, but from realizing our kinship with all beings. So instead of, you know, that first part she's talking about is more out of pity. You know, those who are less fortunate, oh, poor you, poor them. But emptiness allows us to realize the universality of experience. And I love this um, teaching from a book by Henry Nguyen. The book's called Reaching Out, Three Movements of a Spiritual Life, talking about this possibility of making space. He says, we are all healers who can reach out to offer health, and we all are patients in constant need of help. 
Only this realization can keep professionals from becoming distant technicians and those in need of care from feeling used or manipulated. But when we look at healing as creating a space for the stranger, it is clear that we should be willing and able to offer this so much needed form of hospitality. Therefore, healing means, first of all, the creation of an empty but friendly space where those who suffer can tell their story to someone who can listen with real attention. Our most important question as healers is not what to say or to do, but how to develop enough inner space where the story can be received. Healing is the humble but very demanding task of creating and offering a friendly, empty space where the stranger can reflect on their pain and suffering without fear and find the confidence that makes them look for new ways right in the center of their confusion. So empowering of the stranger, of the person needing help, offering them the potential for finding their own way to new ways of healing through that empty space, making space. So compassion and emptiness support each other in that way. And compassion is really the heart of our practice or the intention of our practice. The the Dalai Lama says, love and compassion are necessities, not luxuries. Without them, humanity cannot survive. He also says, I love this, be kind whenever possible, and it's always possible. It's just like, keep it simple, but this reaching out or this kind responsiveness. I remember watching a a video of the Dalai Lama teaching in one of those, you know, he teaches to hundreds, thousands of people. He often wears a a visor because he doesn't like the bright lights, has his glasses. And he was teaching on bodhicitta. And he was reading, you know, one of his favorite texts, probably by Shantideva, which he'd probably read a hundred times before, thousand times before, many, many times. As he was reading it, he started to weep. Just touched by the expression of compassion in the bodhicitta of the words of the text. And he stopped, took off his visor, took off his glasses, got his, he sort of brushed his eyes a little. But he didn't go, oh, sorry, I'm, you know, crying, I didn't mean to, or, you know, oh dear, where was I? He just brushed the tears away, put his glasses on, put his visor back on, and kept going. That to me was such a teaching about the tenderness and the availability of his compassion, but the emptiness that just let him flow through that emotion as his heart was responding. It was so beautiful. And then I've also been touched by Bhikkhu Bodhi, um, who's this great scholar and translator, given us the gift of these readable translations of the Pali Nikayas. So, um, such a, a great gift. 
And he's now become this great activist, sort of from this hermit scholar to this engaged activist. He saw that Buddhism wasn't engaging with real-world suffering like other religions, compared it to Christianity, where there's often this really wholesome movement to relieve suffering through all of the different works that, that, that the people, Christians, undertake. So he wrote an article called A Challenge to Buddhists. And he said, Buddhist teachers often say that the most effective way we can help protect the world is by purifying our own minds, or that before we engage in compassionate action, we must attain realization of selflessness or emptiness. There may be some truth in such statements, but I think it is a partial truth. In these critical times, we also have an obligation to aid those immersed in the world who live on the brink of destitution and despair. The Buddha's mission, the reason for his arising in the world, was to free beings from suffering by uprooting the evil roots of greed, hatred, and delusion. These sinister roots don't exist only in our minds. Today they have acquired a collective dimension and have spread out over whole countries and continents. To help free beings from suffering today therefore requires that we counter the systemic embodiments of greed, hatred, and delusion. Really powerful statement. And so his students listened to him and said, okay, What do you want us to do? We're ready. We want to do this. And I think he was a little taken aback, but they started a a charity called Buddhist Global Relief. They've got various um, uh, uh, actions that they undertake, particularly about ending hunger. Um, And Bhikkhu Bodhi is now often be seen at the head of marches, raising money and uh, awakening people to these really desperate, the desperate need of so many in the world. And so to see, as I said, someone who, you know, I know really was a reclusive scholar, really engaging in that world, this is how we respond. We don't have to be perfect. We don't have to be enlightened. But as this heart-mind gets awakened, through these practices, remember that quality Guy keeps talking about, ceaselessly responsive. This is not about floating around here on our little mountaintop at the forest refuge in our own individual bliss. Yes, there's a, a, so much power to the training of the heart and mind, so we go back out into the world with that um, to offer. But there is also this balancing, this balancing. We are likely to be more effective if we're coming from a place of being connected and clear and wise and compassionate. You could say empty. I don't doubt that. But we don't have to wait till we're enlightened, till we're completely empty, to, to move into the world with engagement, with balance. This is, uh, we can't just practice to have um, bliss on a cushion. How do we move back 
into the world. And so the more we understand and train this heart and mind, we can take that out into the world. And again, we'll all have a choice of what that looks like. I'm not, you know, doing this saying we should all go out there and be on the front lines. But just to emphasize that it's not just about retreating into our um, solitude, but how are we in the world? And how can we bring this uh, empty awareness into an engaged, responsive way in our relationships, with our families, our work colleagues, or the places we volunteer, uh, into our lives? Again, we'll each find our way with what that looks like. But when this heart is responsive and it's supported by emptiness or wisdom, there can be this wise response to the world. And as I said, the the potential of these practices is um, in relationship to especially the Brahma-viharas is this transcendent kind of compassion that Kuan Yin embodies where it's not me sending to you, me doing anything, but just compassion, compassioning, metta, metta-ing. You know, to really get a sense of the flavor of metta, not as the opposite of conditional love, that lets those we love be truly who they are. So out of that deep acceptance based in equanimity, We let them be who they are. We hold them with love and kindness. There's a power to that, that our usual conditioned, um, uh, bargaining kind of uh, attitude around love just can't meet. And it infuses then everything. The equanimity, the joy, the compassion, the metta really can become... um, resilient and responsive. This is the potential when joined with this understanding of emptiness. So whether we know them directly as abundant, exalted, immeasurable, there's that, we have a taste of that, that possibility. This union of compassion and emptiness, our practice and emptiness allows this state of freedom in a moment, temporary nibbana, compassionate, ceaselessly responsive action. I want to close again with one of the poems from that book, The First Free Woman. And this is by Metika. And Metta, as you know, means kindness. So that's her name, Metika. I know my older sister passed this way. At the top of the mountain, I spread my outer robe where perhaps she once spread hers. I set down my bowl, and there was her staff, the twin of my own. Using both staffs, I lowered myself down and leaned back against a large gray rock. I let go of the staffs, and my hands were empty. The mountain went on holding me. Then it let me go. 
My staff I now leave behind, just in case you are ever passing this way. I thought that was a beautiful expression of compassion coming in, letting go, compassion flowing out. Let's just let the word settle. Thank you for your attention. I think you know the drill by now. (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.